Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. Today, I want to talk about the Bible and the problem of slavery and racism. Now, honestly, I don't think of myself as being racist or having prejudice. I believe in my heart that I'm sort of colorblind. But I also believe in sin and human depravity. And depravity means sin gets into the nooks and crannies of my soul. And so it damages every part of me. It gets into my words, my thoughts, my feelings. It gets into my relational life, my financial life, my spiritual life. And so the question becomes, does it perhaps bleed into my racial life and ethnic identity? You know, when I was growing up, if I cut myself, my mom would go to the drugstore and get Band-Aids that were called flesh-colored. But I never thought about how it might feel if my flesh was a different color than flesh-colored. I never thought about how the picture of heaven in the book of Revelation includes people from every tribe, nation, and language standing before the throne. So when you go to CVS in heaven and ask for flesh-colored Band-Aids, what color do they give you? I mean, honestly, I never really thought much at all about skin color growing up. But as I got to know people whose skin color was different than mine, they would share stories with me that kind of surprised me. I mean, one friend told me how he would often get stopped in his car at night, mostly in white suburbs, because his flesh was not flesh-colored. Most days, I never thought about the color of my skin. But he said there wasn't a day of his life that went by that he didn't think about the color of his skin. Now, I share all this because we're in a series called Misunderstanding, discussing what our culture believes about Christ and Christianity versus what the Bible actually teaches. And our topic today is this. Is the Bible pro-slavery? Now, this gets us deep into the issues of racism and racial injustice. I know it's filled with pain for many people. But I think it's an area where maybe a considerable number of us have something to learn. I know I do. There's a Christian scholar named Duke Kwan. And he shares a bit of embarrassing history in the Christian church that I believe we all need to face. Listen to this. He says, it was 400 years ago that the first African slaves were kidnapped from Africa and deposited on the shore of Jamestown. About the same time, the pilgrims were landing at Plymouth Rock. Unfortunately, over and over, the white church of Jesus aided and abetted the enslavement of Africans. By 1750, about 20% of the population of the U.S. colonies was African-American. It's about 12% today. An Anglican bishop had an edict issued to clarify that just because a slave got baptized and came to know Jesus did not mean they were to be set free from slavery. And maybe the most famous Puritan preacher, Cotton Mather, taught that becoming Christians would make slaves better slaves and that it was sinful pride for an African slave to want to be set free. 
George Whitfield, perhaps the most prominent preacher in the U.S. revival known as the Great Awakening, taught that slavery was God-ordained and bondage would lead to the salvation of heathen Africans. From 1846 till the Civil War, every Southern Methodist Episcopal bishop was a slave owner. And if you wonder why were there Southern Methodists, like Southern Methodist University, it was over the issue of slavery. He goes on to say, even in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the two most prominent white evangelists, D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, proclaimed the gospel to audiences that were segregated so that nobody who was African-American was allowed to sit with the white people to hear the good news that Jesus Christ had died for every human being. Now, I share all this because it's really, really important. And we need to learn from our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And today, I want to look at three complex questions. First, what does the Bible say about slavery? Second, what does the Bible say about racism? And then finally, what does all that mean for us as Christians? So first, what does the Bible actually say about slavery? You know, one of the ironies of the Civil War and the debates in the church is that people on both the pro-slavery side and anti-slavery side of things claim the Bible as justification for their position. So preachers on the pro-slavery side would cite texts like 1 Peter 2.18, where Peter said, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And so pro-slavery preachers would point to verses like that and say, see, it's right there in the Bible. Slaves, obey your masters. So clearly the Bible is pro-slavery. But as you might know, the great moral force behind the abolition of slavery was overwhelmingly Christian overwhelmingly Christian. We're talking about people like William Wilberforce in England, John Wesley, Frederick Douglass. In fact, this conflict was so striking that Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, said this, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. You know, all this sometimes leads people to think, well, you can twist the Bible into saying anything you want it to say. So anybody who claims they are being morally guided by the Bible is just suspect and should be regarded with skepticism. No, I don't think that's true at all. And let me explain why. There's a really helpful framework for looking at the Bible and issues related to society. It was offered up by a New Testament scholar named William Webb. And it starts by understanding the nature of this book right here, the nature of the Bible. See, the Bible is not some abstract heavenly blueprint for a universal utopia. No, it was written by real people in a real cultural context who were facing real problems. And quite often, they commanded the audience to make limited but doable changes that point in the direction of God's ultimate love and justice for human well-being. So in the ancient world, systems like patriarchy, slavery, polygamy, and monarchy, they're pretty much universal. For instance, when the Bible was written, all the cultures the biblical writers engaged with included slavery, all of them. Canaanite, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Greek, in ancient Rome, somewhere between a third to a half of all the inhabitants of the city are thought by historians to have been slaves. Think about that. 
like 33 to 50%. So an economic system without slavery simply did not exist in those cultures. It wasn't feasible or possible. But it turns out when you look closely at the biblical text, the commands in the Old Testament consistently undermined the power of slave owners and the whole system of slavery in that world. For example, in the ancient Near East, there was no provision for slaves to be released, none. But in the Bible, in Leviticus, the Israelites were told to release their slaves after seven years of service. In the ancient Near East, there were no provisions to be given to a slave if they did get liberated. But in the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, the Israelites were told to give generously to their slaves when they freed them. In the ancient Near East, as well as in Greece and Rome, slave owners could punish any slave, any time, for any reason, any way they wanted to. But the Old Testament book of Exodus put restrictions on how a slave could or could not be punished and even held the masters accountable. In the ancient world, slaves would be given little time off for holidays. But by comparison, slaves in Israel were given generous time off, including every Sabbath day, which was unprecedented. In the ancient world, runaway slaves or fugitive slaves carried a bounty. In fact, nations would actually make treaties with other nations to ensure that all slaves would get returned. The Code of Hammurabi imposed the death sentence on anyone who helped a runaway slave. Well, by contrast, Deuteronomy 23 said Israel was to provide sanctuary, a safe place for any runaway slave. See, all of this is a radical departure from the practices in the rest of the world. And then you have to add to that a remarkable number of what might be called seedbed texts, they carry the seeds of liberation and freedom that are very contrary to the spirit of the system of slavery. And let me give you some examples of where the Bible carries the seeds of liberation and freedom that laid the groundwork for the abolition of slavery. First, only Israel's Bible taught that every human being, slave or free, is made in the image of God and carries infinite worth. Only Israel taught that every human being was called to exercise dominion and to be good stewards of the earth. Only the Bible says every human being is the object of God's love and Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And then you get to the Apostle Paul, who writes to Philemon about the release of his slave, Onesimus. That's right, Paul called on him to free the man. And Paul also wrote this radical, unheard of, unprecedented statement to the church in Galatia. He said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wow. See, when people in the ancient world looked at the Bible from their perspective, the commands in the Bible looked extremely subversive to slavery. They looked very progressive to that world. And I know when we look back 2,000 years later, they look odd to us. But that's largely because we live in a society where the teachings of the Bible and the works of Jesus' followers who rightly interpreted his word eventually undermined slavery and promoted human equality. 
And let me tell you one other indicator of how anti-slavery the Bible is when it's taken as a whole. In Washington, D.C., there's the Museum of the Bible. And it currently has on exhibit something called the Slave Bible, produced in the U.K. Now, it was published in 1808 in order to convert Africans to Christianity and make them good slaves. So they created the Slave Bible, but the publishers removed those parts of the Bible that might prompt slaves to desire their freedom. So you know what they did? They took out the entire book of Exodus. You say, well, why Exodus? Well, because it's about captives being liberated from their oppressors. So the publisher said, well, we can't let slaves read that, right? They'll think God might do that for them. So we'll take that out of the slave Bible. They also removed every mention of liberty or freedom in the Bible, all of them. One of Paul's arguments for radical unity is found in a letter to the Corinthians where he says, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Slave or free, we are one body. Well, clearly that would be a problem. And so they took that verse out of the slave Bible too. In fact, there are 1,189 chapters in the Protestant Bible. There are only 232 chapters in the slave Bible. You see, to make the Bible safe for slaves, they had to take out about 80% of the chapters. Fascinating, huh? Now, here's another shocker. Did you know there are more people, raw numbers, in slavery today than there have ever been in the history of the world? I mean, even though it's illegal in most places, there are still horrendous injustices in many places. And it particularly affects the poor and people of color. So we still have a lot of work to do, but the Bible, as a matter of fact, when taken as a whole, can be seen to be and was tremendously subversive to slavery. All right, that leads to the next question. Well, what then does the Bible say about racism and racial injustice? Well, Christian historian Mark Knoll has written a book called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, And he talks about how the theological crisis in the Civil War actually involved two issues, and not just one. One was slavery, but the other was racism. You see, even in those sections of the country that were anti-slavery, very few white people were wrestling with what the Bible said about racism. You know, in the ancient world, people got enslaved for a lot of different reasons. One reason was debt. Another was when their side lost a war and all their people would just become slaves. And then third, slavery was also used as a form of punishment because they didn't have prisons back then. But in the ancient world, by and large, people were not enslaved because of their race. For instance, Rome had a lot of slaves. And many of them were from what eventually became Germany or France. A lot of slaves who were whiter than their masters were. So if white people in the American South really wanted biblical slavery, you know, slavery like what's in the Bible, it would have been slavery not based on race. Slavery where most of the slaves would be white. Now, it turns out white people didn't really want biblical slavery at all. American slavery, you got to understand this, was unique because of the racism behind it. 
I mean, most white Americans in the North and the South, even if they argued against slavery, were not in favor of full racial equality, dignity, and integration. And in my opinion, that was the real problem. I mean, even after the bloodiest war in U.S. history, the war to end slavery, tragically, racism just went marching right on. You know, in the ancient world, it was often thought that certain people were just designed by nature to be slaves. In Greece, the famous philosopher Aristotle put it like this, for that some should rule and others should be enslaved is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. And then he actually extends this to gender. Listen to this. He says, a proper wife should be as obedient as a slave. The female is a female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities, a natural defectiveness. Now we don't know what Mrs. Aristotle thought about that. Probably not a whole lot. I mean, that was a common thought in the ancient world. So do you see how the Bible teaches a radically different view of humanity from the rest of the world? A view where everybody shares the image of God and all people are made to be one through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me just give you two verses that show you how revolutionary these ideas were and how they subvert slavery. The first is found in Acts chapter 17. Okay, this is the old King James version here. It says, and he, that would be God, hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. In other words, God only created one race, the human race. And we all share a common origin. This became known as one bloodism. And the notion that everybody can be traced back to Adam has profound implications. It means every human being has a common dignity, a common worth, a common value. It means racism is not just wrong and sinful, it's blasphemy. It demeans the image of God in another human being. In fact, the biblical evidence against racism is so blatant that preachers who were pro-slavery were forced to make up crazy notions such as pre-atomism. Some preachers actually taught in churches the idea that there must have been other quasi-human races God made before Adam. And the inferior races of our day come from some pre-Adam figures in the Bible. That's called pre-Adamism. But the Bible says, and God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. See, one bloodism changed things a lot. And here's another staggering verse. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And you're thinking, well, how is that staggering? Well, that might not look really stunning at first, but I'll tell you why it is. Initially, after the resurrection, the followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were all part of Israel. But in Antioch, Gentiles started believing in Jesus. And so Jews and Gentiles became friends. They started loving each other, eating together, serving one another, learning together, and giving generously to each other. And nothing like that had ever happened before. I mean, up until then, every religion on earth had been a tribal religion. Like it was a part of a tribe or a state. But the Jesus community in Antioch was racially diverse. That was weird. It was unprecedented. So they didn't know what to call it. 
In fact, we're told, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, so why do they give us these names and phrases? Well, it's to show the radical diversity in the leadership team. If you know the regions, you've got a Mediterranean guy, two Africans, a rich Middle Easterner, and a guy from Asia Minor. And we think we invented diversity. Like what in the world are those guys doing in the same room, let alone loving and caring and serving each other in a whole new community? You know, they had to come up with a name for these people who would just promiscuously include anybody. And so they called them Christians, Christ ones, little miniature Christs, after the one who prayed that his father would make his followers one, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And this was the first community in human history where prejudices, stereotyping, racial hostility, and in-group privileges were demolished by the inclusive love of Jesus that swept over them all. I mean, that was Antioch, baby. Christianity at its finest. All right, let's end by talking about this. What does all this mean for us and our calling as a church? Well, first of all, it means we get to be Christians in our area, just like they got to be in Antioch. Asking God to help us build a church as diverse as the kingdom of God itself, which will be an inspiration to our sadly divided nation and bring joy to the heart of Jesus. And folks, things are changing. Like the demographics in our region are shifting. And I'm excited about the opportunities that affords us to grow our church, Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown, and also to plant more Hill Country Bible churches that reflect the diversity we'll see in heaven. We're seeing vibrant African-American communities springing up in our region. A while back, I was invited by a friend to speak at a largely African-American men's conference in Round Rock. It was an honor and a joy. And they welcomed and embraced me, even though I was the only Anglo speaker present. And I've been researching the demographics for this area. And by the year 2035, they predict that the percentage of Latinos in our region will perhaps equal the Anglo population. The percentage of Asians in our region is said to be skyrocketing. The government predicts that people who are currently old will get even older. Yeah, which I have to wonder how much they spent on that study. But you get the point. It means there'll be a good segment of older people, especially here in Georgetown with Sun City. But a good number of millennials and Generation Z are moving into Georgetown as well. And we want to be poised to reach all of these age and ethnic demographics through intergenerational congregations like our own, multi-ethnic congregations, and church plants we support, like the Refuge in South Austin that is targeting Hispanics. I mean, we need to lead the way in tearing down racial barriers, both corporately and personally. There's an African-American pastor named David Anderson, and he coined a phrase that I really love. He launched a church to break down racial barriers and called his people to move from racism to gracism. Isn't that good? We need to move from racism to gracism. He said, gracism is the extension of favor to others based on the grace of God. Boy, I want to be a gracist. 
I want to repent of any place where racism may unwittingly have a toehold on me. Any place where I intentionally or blindly use power and privilege in a way that excludes rather than includes. And I want to call you to be open to do the same as God convicts. David Anderson writes this. He says, when we cling to division, we align ourselves with a kingdom of darkness led by Satan, the ultimate divider. That is the way of division. Unity, on the other hand, aligns us with the God of unity and with Christ, the head of the church. And he says, ask yourself, what does God think? What does God feel? What does God do at the sight of every human being? Some of you know that Wendy and I have our first grandbaby, Marlo Kate. I'm telling you, every time I see her, my heart just melts. And I'm pretty sure she feels the same way about me. Like we were on a Zoom call with her a while back. She's about five months old. And I said to her, how's my little girl? And she looked right into the camera and said, Pops, you're my favorite person in the whole world. Yeah, I know, I know. But just with her eyes, she said it. But people, that's what wells up in the heart of God every time he sees a human being. It's like they're all his favorite. See, his love is perfect, universal, unconditional. And so he loves everyone equally. People, as our community becomes more diverse, I envision this church, Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown, and other churches in our association being as beautiful and diverse and mosaic and barrier-breaking as heaven itself with every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine year after year after year, we get people from more cultures, more races, who reflect more of the beauty of the God who created them and who enrich one another with different forms of worship, prayer, learning, music, family life, history, that all reflects the beauty of heaven and makes the heart of God sing for joy. I mean, can you imagine Hill Country Bible Church is a place where people who have money, power, and privilege richly share with those in need? We did that last year. Our people gave over $100,000 to benevolence in 2020. Isn't that awesome? Can you imagine the God who made from one blood people of every nation looking at our church and saying, well done, Hill Country Bible Church. It's happened again. Antioch has happened again. Oh, may it be so. May we all be agents of the unifying, barrier-breaking love of God expressed by the one who died on a cross to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. May it be so. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to live where we live and, and when we live. And Lord, I want to thank you that you created all human beings, every tribe, tongue, color, culture, and nation. And God, would you show us our blindness or our selfishness or our racial attitudes or our exclusiveness and just rid us of that, Lord. And we pray that the world around us would look at our lives in our neighborhoods, where we work, where we go to school, wherever we're at, that they would look at us and say, like they did in Antioch, we don't know what to call these people, but they're like little Jesuses. That's our prayer. May it be so. May that happen. May we be like the church in Antioch.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.